This is Pastor Matt Harmless with Edgewood Sermon Audio. This is sermon number 66 in the Gospel according to Luke. And in this sermon, we will be covering Luke chapter 11, verses 14 through 23. Um, But I'm going to pray, and I'm going to pray that God will cause some of whatever you may have brought with you through this week into today that might hamper what you might hear today. Let's pray that God would just dissipate that before we start. Can we do that together? Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your graciousness to us. Lord, I just would ask now that, Lord, whatever things, whatever baggage we may have brought with us through this week into this day, Lord God, I pray that you would cause those things to dissipate, clear our minds, prepare our hearts to be ready to listen to your word this morning. Lord, I pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so um, before I really dig in, go ahead and flip those lights on. Before I really dig in, I have two introductory thoughts, um, three actually. Let me give you three introductory thoughts. The first one is this. Um, This particular sermon is kind of a bridge sermon. This happens every once in a while when you're doing expository preaching, when you're preaching through something. Every once in a while you get to one where you're like, I could go on to this next thing, but I'm not skipping stuff. And so this is kind of a bridge sermon as far as, in my mind, the way I was looking at the text and what's going on here. We're really entering into a big section of Luke where there's a a lot of teaching that Jesus does, and he's going to deal with a lot of controversies. And this is one of the first controversies. You're going to start to see that up to this point in Luke, people have been on Jesus' side until just recently, and all of a sudden, he's starting to say some things, and people are going, hold up a minute. And it's gonna, we're going to see this start to snowball as far as particular groups of people in Israel that have power that don't like what he's saying, okay? So we're going to see some things start to kick into gear, and we know ultimately that is all in God's hands. He's working out something in Jesus' life the way he does in our lives. He's working out these things ultimately for this great, great glorious thing called the death, burial, resurrection of our Savior, Okay? So we're going to see those things playing out as we study Luke. Okay, That's the first thought. Second thought, there's these next two thoughts have to do with this passage specifically. Okay? Um, the first one is this, uh, these next two thoughts. first one is this, uh, demons. I'm going to say it. Um, we're going to talk about demons today, a little bit. Okay? Um, we've talked about demons before. We've talked about demon possession. We've talked about what those things look like as Jesus deals with them. We've talked about these things just briefly, but we have quite a few new people here. And so I, I felt like, hey, just real quickly going back and sharing a few thoughts. And I thought I would do it this way this morning. I'd share it with you some thoughts about demons. You didn't think that your pastor would ever say that, did you? Thoughts on demons. <laughs> um, uh, today, I'm going to share with you things about demons, things that I know and things I don't know. Okay. So I'll tell you some things I know and tell you some things I don't know, okay? Something I know, they're real, okay? That's a real thing. I believe that absolutely because the word of God speaks on these things, demons, evil spirits, that is a very, very real thing. I don't believe at all that that is some made-up thing. And so there's a spirit world, there's something beyond the tangible, and the Bible refers to these beings as demons, okay? They're real, Um. Paul ultimately tells us that our wrestlings that we have in this world are not with flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against spiritual forces of darkness in 
high place. I mean, there's, there's stuff going on that our physical eyes cannot detect because light has refracted off of it. Okay? I believe that's a real thing. Number two, I know that it's not talked about as much in the Old Testament. That's something I know. Like, if you read through the Old Testament, you don't hear a lot of evil spirits possessing people. You hear some little things here and there, but you just don't see a whole lot of that through the big chunk of the Old Testament. Um, I also know that it is talked about in the New Testament. Seemingly, especially when you get to the Gospels, all of a sudden it just shows up on the scene, like all over the place, it feels like, in my head, when I read the Gospel accounts. There's these demon possessions that Jesus is facing and tackling. And I would say especially in the ministry of Jesus. I don't know why there was such a high incident rate of demon possession during that time period. I have some theories, but ultimately, I don't know. Are you guys okay with that? I don't, I don't know. There, I have some thoughts, some theories, if you're ever interested in why I think possibly. I have some. Some I'm going to hint at in a minute. I know as well, and this gets into some vagary, I know as well that sometimes in the scriptures there are physical symptoms attributed to demonic influence. Okay? I know that because the story that we have today, that's the case. So that's something else I know. In the story today, we're going to read about a physical symptom, and the Bible attributes it to a demonic influence. What, what does that overlap about? That falls into the I don't know category. Especially because... If you take that too far, if you go, I know that it says, but I take that too far, there could be some weird questions that pop up today, couldn't there? How much of what we see today might be something that? I don't know. Could there be more to some things than, we, than meets the eye? Sure. I don't know. One of the things we're going to see as we go through this, I'm glad that there's one who does know our Savior and King, who has authority, like our last song said, over all. Are there cases of that today? Maybe. Could there be more of this than we recognize? I think so. One last thing that I know. I know people who claim to know all about this don't know as much as they say that they know. Can I end with that thought? People who do come down on a, like a hard line, like, oh, no, this is clearly... I'm going to tell you, everybody I know that comes across as an authority on this doesn't know as much as they think they know. Let me just say that, and we'll leave it there. All right, number two, or three, technically, third thought. We're, we're building into this, okay? It's good. You guys are staying with me. I appreciate it. Let me talk one more thing here. Supernatural things in the Bible. And I say supernatural as opposed to miracle in the Bible. Supernatural over miracle because, frankly, the miraculous happens every single day that we wake up, does it not? So the miraculous versus the supernatural. We say supernatural as opposed to what happens naturally. I think most of the natural things that are happening in the world are very miraculous. Every time a flower opens again, though what a miracle. That How in the world? I was watching a... I love the science shows. I was watching one that was talking about uh, the, the Venus flytrap. You know, this plant, and it closes on these animals. And it, the, 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 it builds up a hydraulic pressure 
in the cells. And when it snaps, it's not like me. When I snap, I'm using muscles. That plant doesn't have muscles. So it builds up in the cells. There's a cellular change at the moment those, those little hairs inside are touched and triggered. It goes, closes on that fly or whatever else is crawled into it. That's, I mean, they start talking about that. And it's, it's hilarious to me so often when you have these shows that are talking about it and they're talking about how it evolved over millions of years. But then they're like, the and then they'll throw weird words, and I go, are you listening to yourself? They're like, this has been engineered clearly. I mean, listen, literally, that's what the guy said. He goes, the engineering in this leaf that shuts clamps has, is marvelous. And he's going on and on about this. He goes, how in the world did it come about? By? And I'm going, dude, are you even listening to yourself? And I just marvel at those things. And so I, I'm, I'm careful when I talk about this, the miraculous versus supernatural. I have a couple of charts here I want to show you. Um, Let's start with this one here. This one is uh, the history of the earth, and the bars represent numbers of supernatural miracles recorded in Scripture. That, now, this chart is incomplete, okay? This one, I, I really had to try to find some sources to create this thing. But you may notice that um, I just showed my hand how old I think the earth is. That's my opinion. Um, but uh, you, you don't, there's not a lot of supernatural events. Now, I'm showing this to you for a reason. Some people think that the Bible is just full of these supernatural things happening left and right. Actually, over the course of the history of the earth, you don't see that. You see peaks of it. Uh, what do you guys think these, these two peaks are? And then the third, the real big one. Anybody want to take a guess what this first one is? Hmm? Moses, yes. This next one here is right around the time of Elijah, Elisha, and the prophets, the law, the prophets. And then you have this one here. Who do you think that one's all about? <laughs> Jesus and the, those first apostles, right? You see, a, you see what you actually see in Scripture is a high connection between revealing of information with supernatural events verifying or validating those things okay that's actually what you see through scripture uh, another way to look at this this other chart i have to go back this one is i got this one from somebody else this one is broken down words how all the words of the bible and um the books of the bible you can see barely see them along the bottom um, broken down per six thousand four hundred words so all the words and so whoever made this i appreciated it um, but these are the supernatural things that are in, just even in the scriptures themselves. And so you see, just even in looking through the Bible, is it, is it chock full every page of supernatural things? On the one hand, you'd have to say, no, most of the time what you actually see through this word is God working in this world in what we would call natural means. Okay? Now, I quibble about my own words because I think that everything he does is supernatural. But do you get the main idea of what I'm saying? There's just this false idea that a lot of people have that they go, they, they look at things that were going on and, and they're like, why aren't those things happening today? And I, I got to be honest with you, I would not expect them to be happening the same way they were happening at that time. In fact, what you should expect to see as God reveals himself the most fully in the person of Jesus Christ, you ought to see the biggest breakthrough, the biggest, the, the thinness between the the supernatural and the natural shattered when God is revealing himself in the biggest possible way, which is exactly what you see. Okay? Now, 
remember, this is a bridge sermon. So there's, there's, I'm laying down some ideas here and some thoughts that we're going to take another 10 chapters to unpack, okay? I'm not going to get to all of them today. I just wanted to throw these out there just as preliminary thoughts. Now, let's go to our text of Scripture today, okay? Let's go to our text. We're in Luke chapter 11, starting at verse 14. And the story says this. Now he, being Jesus, was casting out a demon that was mute, meaning the man was mute, but it's caused by this demon. This demon was causing this man to be mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man, there it is, spoke, and the people marveled. Matthew 12, 22 includes the same story but includes the fact that he was also blind and that when this demon was cast out of him by Jesus, he was also able to see. Okay? This is, is this the first time Jesus has done something like this? No. In fact, Luke is including this story because he's, like I said, he's venturing into this realm of, he's not necessarily hitting everything chronologically. Some of these things he's grouping together as types of events that happen. So he's telling everybody this thing happened and this sparked something else. Some of them, so these people now, these people have been seeing this and marveling at it. This particular time they said this. Notice there's two responses here. Some people are going, he casts out demons by Beelzebul. And all of you 80s people, a song just popped in your head. The prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. So there's two things there. One group is saying, oh, this is, it's the prince of demons, Satan. He's casting out demons by the prince of demons, Satan himself. Right? Others are like, let's do another one. Let's see some more. Okay? Now, the word Beelzebul means lord of the house. Um, there's actually a huge discussion you can get into that's really irrelevant to the ultimate meaning of this text about what this word means because, in fact, the, you may have heard it pronounced Beelzebub, right? Beelzebub was a little play on words that the Jews did because Baal, Lord, Baal meant Lord, Lord of the house, so Beelzebub, Lord of the house, the Jews would say Beelzebub, which meant Lord of the flies, right? And so they were kind of making a little twist on the word to make it mean something different. That's one possibility, and so some of your versions may even have Beelzebub written here instead of Beelzebul. But regardless of that, they understood, Jesus understood, this was a name that had been given to Satan himself. Beelzebul, Lord of the house, right? Prince of demons. And the other gospel accounts were told, not by Luke here, but by the other gospel accounts, that it wasn't just, just random people. Luke isn't worried about who it is, but this is, there's an important part of this captured in who's at the root behind this, okay? So Matthew 12, uh, 22 through 24 talks about that it was the Pharisees that were behind this particular statement. Uh, in Mark chapter 3, we see this. It was the scribes, right, who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. He's doing these things in this way. I think Luke is approaching this head on, and we'll get to that in just a moment. I think Matthew and Mark are including some details that help us understand this argument at its root, especially Mark when he says they were saying. In fact, I'm going to tell you that I think John MacArthur, Pastor John MacArthur, might be onto something when he ascribes this argument as coming from Jerusalem, like it says in Mark, that this was more of an official statement. The religious leaders, they had to come up with some explanation for Jesus. 
And I think from the scribes, the Pharisees, the official statement is found right here. And some of the people were even saying it according to Luke. But this has come from their religious leaders. They had to have an explanation for Jesus. Some of them cast out demons by Beelzebub. We've got to explain this. Now, this brought me to my first little thought-provoking point. When I'm thinking about these texts, there's a big chunk of this. I'm going to be honest with you. I could spend the whole day today just talking to you as if I'm a teacher telling you what the text says. I think this is super fascinating. What's going on behind the scenes? But I love, one of the things I love that Jesus does in his ministry, even in controversy, he brings things back around, and sometimes he does it in a roundabout way. Sometimes it's real direct. But he brings things back around to the heart. What about you? So that whatever issue is the issue, Jesus manipulates and works in a, a, a magnificent fashion through his words. And he brings things back around to where each person has to say, what about me? And so let's just ask that question. What do we do with Jesus? Now, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, right? You guys are like, we already know who he is. <laughs> We're here. We get it, right? But I think this is a question that we need to ask that the world needs to answer. You've got to do something with Jesus. What do we do with Jesus? What are the options that we even have to do with Jesus? In the 1700s, a pastor, a Scottish pastor named John Duncan said this. He said, Christ either deceived mankind by conscious fraud, option one, or he was himself deluded and self-deceived, option two, or option three, he was divine. There's no getting out of this, and he called it a trilemma instead of a dilemma. This is three, trilemma. You, you can't get away from it. There's, if you read the words of the book of what Jesus said and did, you have three options. Now, some of you know, some, there was another author that made this even more famous by calling it, the, and we, we call it the liar, lunatic, or lord trilemma. And if you guys remember Steve Simpkins, this was his favorite C.S. Lewis quote, was this quote by C.S. Lewis. He says this in Mere Christianity, about 150 years after this guy C.S. Lewis says, I'm trying here to prevent, and I, I, per, I want you to know, I, I personally take this approach. I've actually taken this approach with people I've been talking to in the world when Jesus comes up as a topic, okay? And I've, I've borrowed some of C.S. Lewis's words. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God, which people do that. What's one of the most famous people that did that? In, in our American history, one of the most famous people that said, yeah, I think he was a great teacher, but I don't accept his cl these other claims. Does anybody know? Thomas Jefferson. What did Thomas Jefferson do? I've talked about it a lot of times here. He sat down with a Bible in his hands. And what else? Razor blade. And just went through and said, let's get rid of this. Let's get rid of this. You can look it up, the Jefferson Bible. He took everything supernatural and every claim to be God that Christ made and just took these other things and said, oh, he's a great moral teacher. That's a ridiculous thing is what C.S. Lewis is saying. That's ridiculous. That is the one thing we must not say. 
And some people, they try to say that. They go, oh, I think he, he had some great teachings about love and this. And then they start to name in a few of these little random things. Half of them aren't actually Jesus who said them, which that happens more and more in the world that we live in, right? They know less and less of what he actually said. This is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left us He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Others have recognized this. The author, Christopher Hitchens, who's a well-known atheist, speaking about, actually speaking about something that Thomas Jefferson said. This was in a book review for something completely different. But he's talking about Thomas Jefferson. He said Thomas Jefferson wasn't very honest about this. And so he says this, Christopher Hitchens says, I'm, I'm bound to say that Lewis is more honest here on this particular thought. And it, then he's saying more honest than Thomas Jefferson was. Absent a direct line to the Almighty and a conviction that the last days are upon us, how is it moral to claim a monopoly on access to heaven? See, Christopher Hitchens knows that what the teachings of Jesus say, Jesus claims a monopoly on access to heaven. How is that moral, he says. Or to threaten waverers with everlasting fire. Jesus does that. Those that waver, he threatens them with everlasting fire. How is that moral? Christopher Hitchens says, hey, was that, is that a moral teacher? Let alone condemn fig trees. <laughs> he did that too, didn't he? And persuade devils to infest the bodies of pigs. Such a person, if not divine, would be a sorcerer and a fanatic. Christopher Hitchens recognizes this. These things. There's also another writer. I don't have any of his quotes up here, but there's a book called The Madness of Jesus by a, a French psychologist written about 100 years ago. I mean, this is a people that understand the text of Scripture, understand that this is a reliable piece of ancient literature that you can't get away from. And so people with real understanding of these sorts of things say, you got to do something with him. He's either a liar or a lunatic. There's something still supernatural, and I think that the people that were in Jesus' day, they didn't have the luxury like our modern skeptics do. Our modern skeptics have the ability to chalk everything up to liar. If it wasn't Jesus that was lying, it was somebody else that lied about him, and they chalk it all up to myth and story. But those people had a different problem, didn't they? Because it was happening right in front of them. So to follow with the liar, lunatic, or Lord, let's throw another L in there. I think that they said he's either liar, lunatic, Lord, or Lucifer. That's, there's, that, we're left without any other options. He casts out demons. He, if he's casting out demons, it must be by the prince of demons. I mean, they're seeing people dominated by something supernatural, some supernatural force that was ruining their lives, and Jesus is coming along saying, get out. And suddenly they're freed and healed. 
whether it's physical sickness, something spiritual, or some weird conglomeration of the two, like in this guy. This Jesus was just coming along and saying, get out, be healed, breathe, see. And these people are doing things. And so the ones that were opposing him had to come up with some explanation for who's Jesus. How is he doing these things? And unlike our skeptics today, they didn't have the luxury of just saying, oh, it was all story. Because people were seeing it, but there were eyewitnesses to those things. So they had to do something. And so they said he must be casting out demons by the prince of demons. Now, here's where Jesus is going to respond to this. Now, I think that some of that argument that they had wasn't even verbal. Because listen to what happens next. Oh, I'm sorry. I have one more passage in here. That's okay. I'll come back to that one later. It says, but he... Knowing their thoughts, said to them, which I love that, especially the ones who were wanting an extra sign. He just gave them a sign, didn't he? I mean, he read their thoughts. Missed that one. Knowing their thoughts, said to them, and he starts to use some logic. So now, my geometry teacher core came alive. The logic, Jesus is using logic here, and I love it. Right? So he's going to argue with them. Not in, not the, some, of you, some of you don't know, you don't know how to argue. Kids today don't know how to argue. You think argument is like, no, it's not. That's not an argument. A true argument is when you build a defense and explain something and try to usurp them with your knowledge and your understanding and your comprehension and start using some if-then statement. Well, if this is true, then this is true. And if this is true, then this. Even if you use bad logic, you can still make some really good arguments. Sorry. No, you can't. Do not argue with your dad. But Jesus, knowing the thoughts, he starts this argument. Then he says, okay, okay, let's go with what you're saying here, guys. And he says this, but there, you got a problem. And he says this, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. So he starts to present, and this is a common piece of logic, a piece of wisdom that they knew. In fact, the Israelites would have known this personally because what happened with their own kingdom was it not divided, and did it not eventually fall? Every kingdom divided against itself falls. This is something they would have held true and dear. And anybody with a half a bit of sense knows this truth. He addresses their position. And so he takes it to the next step. And, well, if that's the case, and if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, that's the prince of demons. So in other words, he's going down this line. Well, if you're saying that that's how I do it, that, how would this work in Satan's kingdom? Then he says this next. He takes their, logic, their argument to its logical end, to its logical dead end, I might say. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by who do your sons cast them out? So here, he's saying your argument proves too much. If your argument is that if casting out of demons, if what I'm doing is by the prince of demons, then... You could make the same argument by anybody else that's doing this exact same thing. Now, there's an interesting little thought here that I want to plant in your minds. It's interesting when it says, by your own sons. A lot of us get real confused by that. This may have actually been talking about just by your own people. In other words, the disciples who had been doing those things. It may not necessarily have been the Jewish exorcists doing these things. It may have actually been the disciples. They've seen the disciples do these things. So if you're saying, I'm doing it by him, if they're doing it by them, they're all doing it by them, they're going to be your judges on this. 
The point is that the, what the opponents say about Jesus proves too much. And he says, you basically have disproved every possibility of this. Demonic influence they knew and recognized. And they knew what good things happened when it was removed. And to say that Satan was doing that to himself made no sense is what Jesus is saying. And so then he says, but. Okay, that's a ridiculous argument is what he says. We could go down that avenue a little bit further if you'd love to talk. I'd love to talk about the logic behind that, but there's some interesting little tidbits of logic embedded in there. He says this, but if. what, And this is where he does this little turn. But what if the alternative is true? What if the alternative is true? What if, I, I've been able to bring these things about, like when, you, when you're talking to people about Jesus, you're talking about what the Bible says, you're talking about different things that are in there, and especially they have some knowledge of the scriptures, you start talking about those things. Sometimes I'd like to go, yeah, 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 and I say, but, but, but what, what, if, what if it was, and basically this argument, what, but if it's by the finger of God, if that was God infiltrating the world in the person of Jesus Christ, what does that mean for you? Right? You see how what he did there? Turned it back around. But if, but if on the other hand, if it's God, the finger of God, what does that mean for you? And he tells them, then the kingdom of God has come upon you, come near you. The kingdom of God is infiltrating this world. Now, I'd love to talk about what this kingdom stuff is talking about, but we're gonna, that's going to keep unfolding through the next several chapters. But let's just hover on that. What does this mean for you? C.S. Lewis says, in his follow-up to his argument, he says, now it seems to me obvious that he was neither lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, and I love how he puts this, consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Now, I'm almost done. We've gone through the lesson. We've gone through his logic. He's bringing it back home. And he says this next thing. He goes into a teaching based on what he was just talking about. See, because it is not by Satan that he was casting out demons. So he says this, and he gives us a glimpse. I think this is a glimpse of something that was going on behind the scenes. Every once in a while you get these little glimpses of things going on behind the scenes, and you go, wow, there was a lot more going on there than I realized. I think this is one of those cases. When a strong man, who do you think the strong man is? Jesus, right? When the strong man, fully armed, Oh, I'm sorry, I got that backwards. Who do you think the strong man, it wasn't Jesus, it's Satan. Strong man, fully armed, sorry, I was jumping ahead of myself, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when, when one stronger than he, who's that? I got it backwards the first time, who's that? That's Jesus. One stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. There's some aspect of what we're seeing in the ministry of Jesus is about a stronger man coming in and defeating the strong man and dividing the spoil. 
The beginnings of the kingdom are happening. And then he ends with this happy little tidbit at the very end. No neutrality, guys. Whoever is not with me, you're either with me or you're against me. Is he lying? Is he crazy? Or is he Lord of all? Daryl Bach summarizes this, uh, this section by saying this, to not consciously join Jesus is to be against him. When it comes to deciding about Jesus, there is no neutral ground. The images of 11, 21 to 22 are strong. That's that strong man and the stronger man coming in. A war is going on, and one must choose sides. There are no Switzerlands in this war. Could, could one of our, our older people tell one of our younger people what, what the Switzerland thing is about? Come on, somebody tell us. What what Switzerland do during the wars? Yeah. 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 They just said, we're not in this. Jesus has just said, that can't happen. If you're not with, guess what? You're against. The one who does not gather with Jesus, that's what he said, whoever does not gather with me scatters. The one who does not gather with Jesus, who does not participate in his ministry and mission, ends up being the cause of division. Such a holdout scatters in contrast to joining those who gather. Rather than helping to bring in the harvest, the harvest is lost in their hands. To reject Jesus or even to fail to decide about him influences not only the individual but others as well. That's where I'm going to leave you with this, this week. Whose side are you on? Are you gathering? Well, I may not be gathering, but I'm not scattered. No, Jesus, Jesus just said, you, that's not a thing. You're either with or against. And if you're not with, he says, you are against. Is he lying? Is he lying to us about this? I don't think so. Is he crazy? Lunatic? No. Is he Lord of all? I believe yes. And I believe that we will one day see which side we were on. And I think the call then, and what I think is interesting, because I call it a call, but is it, does, he, does he offer a call in this at all at this point? Does he say, come join me? He just said, here's the reality, guys. You're either with or against Deal with it. And that's how I'm going to end today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
Lord, I believe, hope that Jesus is Lord of all. My belief, my hope, as many others in this room, we put everything into that hope that he came to this earth, that he was God in the flesh, that he lived a righteous life amongst people, that he was betrayed, that he was crucified, that he died and bore the very wrath of you, Father, on himself taking our sin, our shame on him. But Lord, we also believe that he came back, that he rose, he defeated death, that the battle that he started on this earth in casting out, he's, he's binding up that strong man, Satan, casting out his demons out of people's lives. And Lord, now he's dividing the spoil. Lord, I would ask now that you would be with each soul in this room. Lord, I pray that if they are with you, God, that you will strengthen them, empower them, embolden them to live, breathe, die this kingdom that they are in that is not of this world. Lord, I pray for those in this room are not there yet. Lord, help them to see, first of all, that there is no neutral ground. You are either with or you are against. And I pray by your great grace, not by any merit of our own, not, not because we deserve to be in your army, not because we deserve to be a part of your kingdom, not because we're just so great, Lord, simply by your grace on a wretched sinner that you would regenerate hearts even at this moment. For those that are unsure, Lord, I pray that you would regenerate their spirit, their heart, their mind, that they would at this time turn to you as their Lord, their Savior, that they would serve you the rest of their days, gathering with you, preparing for the harvest. I pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please feel free to contact Edgewood Church at 217-806-0527 or email info at edgewood.com dash danville.org